And today we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For the reading of God's Word, we're going to start in verse 9, however, and and then read through verse 14, since today's verses are the conclusion to the opening section of the letter. So, you have your copy of God's Word there. Please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we do gather together now in acknowledgement of the fact that were it not for Your grace given to us in the Gospel of Christ, we would not know the good news that this passage declares. If it were not for Your grace, Father, we would be in the grips of darkness. But by Your grace, we have been brought to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that You would help us to hear Your Word today with faith. I pray that You would give me grace, Father, to speak true and faithfully what it is that the Scriptures declare. And we pray, Father, that You would use this Lord's Day as another instance of Your work to build us up into mature manhood in Christ so that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but that we would stand firm in the Lord. Help us today, God. We cannot do this apart from You. We ask for Your help now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Think back, if you would, with me to our passage last week that we just read, where the Apostle Paul prayed for God to sustain the Colossians in living out the Christian life. So we looked at last week. Toward the end of that prayer, the Apostle Paul made an incredibly encouraging statement. He declared that God the Father has qualified His people to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You can see it there in verse 12. What a powerful truth, friends, that God Himself has made His people worthy to receive the heavenly inheritance. No wonder then that Paul identified thanksgiving as one of the main ways to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Thanksgiving. When you know that God the Father has made you worthy, when you know that God has qualified you to be His heir in Jesus, what other response is there but thanksgiving? The truth of verse 12 is full of hope. It's full of assurance for the Christian. There is, however, a question that arises 
as we consider the hopeful truth of verse 12. It might not be a question that you think of at first, but it is an important question. In fact, I would go so far to say that if we don't answer this question, then the encouragement of verse 12 evaporates. The hope becomes rather flimsy and the assurance crumbles. It is that significant of a question. The question is this. How can a holy God make an unholy people worthy to be His heirs? Let me say that again. How can a holy God make an unholy people worthy to be His heirs? Friends, this is a massively significant question. Remember, the Scriptures are very clear about who God is and who we are by nature. God is holy, unstained by sin, completely devoted to righteousness, just in all of His ways, and infinite in all of His perfections. He has never done anything unrighteous. Indeed, God cannot do unrighteousness. All that God does is just and right because He is the Holy One. According to Scripture, that's who God is. He is holy. We, on the other hand, are unholy. We come into this world stained by sin, having inherited both the guilt and the corruption of our father Adam's sin in the garden. By nature, our hearts run after evil. In fact, the Bible declares that by nature, all that we do is unrighteousness. Even our best actions are often tainted by sinful motives, unholy aspirations, and wicked desires. According to Scripture, this is who we are by nature. We are unholy. So, when Paul says the holy God has qualified an unholy people, the question virtually screams out for an answer. How can God do this and remain true to who He is? How can He do this? How can God qualify sinners to be His heirs while at the same time maintaining His own commitment to righteousness and justice? Look, as creatures made in the image of God, even we know intuitively that unrighteousness must be dealt with. Even we know that wickedness demands justice. And yet in verse 12 of Colossians 1, Paul says that the righteous God qualified an unrighteous people. How can this be? How can God do this? You see, this is the great question circulating behind and underneath the good news of the Gospel. How can a holy God make an unholy people worthy to be His heirs? Our passage today, friends, gives us the answer. If verse 12 described the wonderful result of the gospel that believers are qualified to be God's heirs, then verses 13 and 14 describe the glorious work of the gospel. How that qualification has happened. How the holy God makes an unholy people worthy. If verse 12 is the result of the Gospel, verses 13 and 14 are the work of the Gospel. In these verses, the Apostle Paul pens one of the clearest summaries of the Gospel in the entire New Testament. These verses are only one sentence in the original, 
But in this one sentence, Paul takes us all the way from our abject slavery to sin on the one hand to the blessed reality of those sins being forgiven on the other. And he does so by declaring to us the centrality of Christ crucified. You see, friends, that's the answer to our pressing question. How can a holy God make an unholy people worthy? Only through the death of God's beloved Son. That's how. It's the cross of Christ. More specifically, it's the blood of Christ that makes the encouragement of verse 12 possible. So if you'll look at the passage with me, you'll notice that verses 13 and 14 focus on two distinct actions of the triune God. In verse 13, Paul focuses on God the Father, how He has rescued His people from sin's slavery. And then in verse 14, Paul shifts to focus on God the Son, how He has redeemed His people from sin's penalty. Those two gospel realities are the heart of this passage. How can God make sinners worthy? Because He has rescued us from sin's slavery and redeemed us from sin's penalty. That's how. Of course, those are very rich statements. So let's take advantage of our time today to simply focus in on these magnificent gospel realities. First of all, in verse 13, God's people have been rescued from sin's slavery. That's the first thing I want us to focus on. We've been rescued from sin's slavery. As we just said, the focus in verse 13 is on God the Father. You'll notice back in verse 12, Paul specifically identified the Father as the recipient of our thanksgiving. So as Paul transitions into verse 13, it's God the Father whom He has in view. It's God the Father who is the He in verse 13. And what draws Paul's attention is the Father's work to deliver His people. That verb deliver carries the idea, quite simply, of rescuing someone from danger. Paul actually uses this verb numerous times to describe his own ministry as an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul testifies that God rescued him from all the persecutions and sufferings of his missionary work, whether it was a shipwreck or a riotous mob in Ephesus, at each turn, God delivered Paul from danger. So you can hear the note of rescue in those references. And that's the idea here in verse 13. God the Father has intervened to deliver, to rescue His people. But to say that the Father has rescued His people only raises this question. Rescued from what? What is the danger from which God has delivered the Christian? Well, unlike Paul's testimony, the deliverance of verse 13 doesn't have to do with earthly or physical danger. No, it's much more serious than that. God the Father has rescued His people, you see it, from the domain of darkness. Actually, friends, that translation is a bit tame. It might be better to say that the Father has rescued His people from the dominion of darkness. The dominion. You see, the idea is not so much a sphere or a place where darkness dwells. It's more about the power that darkness exercises over people's lives. 
And of course, if you read even briefly in the Bible, you'll quickly learn that darkness is associated with the evil one and with sin. Light denotes God's presence, even God's holiness, while darkness has the opposite connotation. Darkness in the Bible is a spiritual and moral category. So think about Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the Bible, where the Apostle John says there will be no more night, no more darkness in the new creation. Why is that such good news, that there's no more darkness? Because it means that sin and wickedness and evil will be no more. You see, darkness in the Bible is a spiritual and moral category. To be in the domain of darkness then is to be subjected to the power of sin. Those who dwell in darkness experience the horrendous effects of the evil one's wicked regime. Domination, subjection, even slavery. Those are the realities Paul has in mind when he says the domain of darkness or the dominion of darkness. Friends, we have to pause here and come to grips with what this means for humanity in our natural state. According to the Bible, we come into this world utterly subjected to sin and to its effects. We are not merely prone to sin, we are devoted to sin. We are naturally drawn to darkness the way that the moth is drawn to a flame. The natural human heart has no ability to turn to God because the natural human heart is enslaved to sin. I know that slavery is a strong word, but that's what verse 13 teaches us, friends. The dominion of darkness. Human beings, you and I, come into this world completely enslaved to sinful darkness. Hopeless and helpless, we exist in the grip of sin's domination. This is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's the same idea that Paul's talking about here. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world stands in opposition to God. But it's not just the world out there, friends. The Bible says the opposition is in here too, in our hearts by nature. The domain of darkness is what defines humanity in its natural state. And in that domain, there is no hope that we would rescue ourselves. None. Again, please let these words sink in. Subjection. Domination. Slavery. That is the natural state of fallen human beings. Now, with those words in mind, read verse 13 again and marvel at the grace of God the Father. He has delivered us, Paul says, from the domain of darkness. Understand, friends, this is why time and time again the Bible declares to us that salvation begins with God. While we were enslaved in sin's darkness, the Father did what only He could do. He rescued undeserving sinners like us. It's almost too good to even conceive of it that the Father did not remain far off in unapproachable light, that He did not leave His people to suffer under sin's power, that He did not instantly condemn us as enemies, which would he, he would have been just to do. No, in His infinite grace, 
the Father broke sin's domination. He destroyed sin's shackles. And He gave new life to those once dead in sin's darkness. Friends, you do know this is what happens when someone is saved through the preaching of the Gospel. This is what happens. When a person is saved, it's not simply that that person made a decision to follow Jesus, as important as that is. No, it's much more amazing than that. Through the preaching of the Gospel, God the Father has commenced His rescue operation. The Gospel goes out through the preaching of the Word. It's then applied by the Holy Spirit of God. And in that moment, the the mystery of salvation occurs. As the Word hits their ears and as the Spirit imparts life to their heart, that person is saved. It's a miracle. The Father breaks sin's shackles. He crushes sin's domination. And He rescues His people from the domain of darkness. It's God's work because God alone could accomplish such an incredible rescue. Brothers and sisters, if you're trusting in Christ today, this is your testimony. Verse 13 is your testimony. The Father has rescued you from sin's dominion. You are no longer a slave to sin. Do you believe that? You are no longer enslaved to sin's power. Yes, as Christians, we still struggle with sin, but that struggle itself is evidence of life. Do do you see it, friends? Those who are dead in sin don't struggle. Those who are in the grip of darkness are content there. So as you strive after godliness, even that pursuit with all of its stops and starts is a reminder of the Father's grace in your life. He has delivered you. He has made your pursuit possible because He's rescued you, Paul says, from the domain of darkness. You may have noticed though in verse 13 that the good news doesn't stop with the Father's work of deliverance. The Father's work is actually twofold according to verse 13. Not only does the Father rescue His people from sin's domination, but He also transfers His people into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friends, the idea here is that God gives His people a new identity. Instead of being slaves to darkness, God makes us citizens of Christ's kingdom. Instead of being subject to the evil one, God causes believers to experience the redemptive reign of Jesus Christ. And this change could not be more dramatic. The domain of darkness is oppressive. The kingdom of Christ brings freedom. The domain of darkness destroys people. The kingdom of Christ restores people. The domain of darkness is chaotic and fearful. The kingdom of Christ is love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a new identity, a new status, even a new future. Those who belong to Christ are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. God rescues them from darkness and He moves them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And in this kingdom, do you know what defines the believer's relationship with God the Father? While we were in the domain of darkness, it was hostility that defined our relationship to God. We were opposed to Him, even hating Him and hating others, the Bible says. But in the kingdom of Christ, do you know what defines our relationship to the Father? Love. 
Love defines our relationship to the Father. Through the Gospel, love defines the Christian's relationship to God the Father. Notice, I'm not making this up. This comes from the Bible. Notice verse 13, how Paul identifies Christ as the Father's beloved Son. Do you see it? He's His beloved Son. This is central to the New Testament. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the Son whom the Father loves. Think of Jesus' baptism accounts in the Gospel. What does the voice from heaven which is God's voice. What does the voice from heaven declare about Jesus? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. For all eternity, the Father has delighted in His Son with a perfect love that cannot change. And yet, what did the Father do with that beloved Son? He gave Him up for us and for our salvation. Do you see it, friends? To know Christ is to know the love of the Father, unfailing for all eternity. To have Christ as your Redeemer is to have the Father's love as your confidence, unfailing for all eternity. So when Paul says here in verse 13 that believers live now in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, he's telling us we live each day in the reality of the Father's love. If you're a Christian today, If you've turned from your sins and you're trusting in Christ, God loves you as His child. We shouldn't ever be embarrassed by saying that. God loves you as His child. If you're a Christian today, you know the Father's love because you have Christ as your deliverer. This is why the divine rescue of verse 13 is such a stunning gospel reality. Not only has the Father broken sin's tyranny, but He's also given us His love in Christ. By grace, God's people have been rescued from sin's slavery. The reference to God's Son at the end of verse 13 transitions us to that second gospel reality that comes in verse 14. Believers have been redeemed from sin's penalty. Rescued from sin's slavery and now redeemed from sin's penalty. Within the flow of the passage, verse 14 tells us how the rescue of verse 13 has been accomplished. How did the Father deliver us from darkness? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus died in the place of His people, believers are freed from sin's slavery. That's what redemption means, friends. It means to be bought back, to be liberated, to be freed at a price. And the price that secured such freedom was the blood of Jesus. And as a result of this redemption, believers have forgiveness of sins, Paul says. Forgiveness of sins. Remember, friends, sin has a definite penalty that must be dealt with. All the way back in Genesis 3, God clearly defined sin's penalty to be death, both physical and spiritual. Our bodies suffer under the curse of sin and our souls suffer under sin's tyranny as well. The penalty for sin is death. And that penalty cannot simply be swept under the rug of the universe. This is a common misconception that people have about forgiveness. We talk about forgiveness as though God simply just winks and nods and decides to not punish sin. He's just going to overlook it and act like it didn't happen. That's not what forgiveness means. That's never the case. 
The penalty must be enforced. It must be dealt with, for God is just. And so, when the Father determined to rescue His people, He did so by sending His own Son to deal with sin's penalty. This is the divine purpose at work in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you were reading through the Bible for the first time, the most important question that should hit you is, why is this man dying on the cross? What is God doing here? He died to bear sin's penalty. He hung on the cross to taste the bitter sting of death. And therefore, God's people have forgiveness. Do you see the cost of forgiveness, friends? It's free to you and me because we don't have to earn it, but it's costly in the economy of God. Costing the blood of His Son. Believers are not forgiven because God decided to simply let sin slide as though nothing happened. No, believers are forgiven because the punishment, the penalty, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. I do wonder this morning, friends, if you believe that glorious good news that your sins are forgiven. If you're in Christ today by faith, the Father is not punishing you and He will not punish you for your sins. Why? Because He punished Jesus in your place. That's what the cross was about, brothers and sisters. Christ took your penalty so that you would be forgiven. The Father is not punishing you, and He will not punish you, because Jesus has already paid the penalty at the cross. You know, your mind can tell you strange things in the midst of life's hardships. This is true even for Christians. Your mind can tell you strange things. So you don't get that job opportunity, and you think, maybe God is punishing me. Your child gets sick and you think, maybe God is angry with me for what I did when I was young. Or maybe there's just a general sense of things not going well in your life and you think, I'm sure God is paying me back for that awful thing I did way back when. Brothers and sisters, please hear me very clearly. If you belong to Christ by faith, those thoughts are utterly untrue. Those thoughts are at odds with the Gospel. And on the authority of God's Word, you should not listen to them. The Father will not punish His children for their sin because He's already punished Jesus at the cross. Listen to me. He, he, didn't, he didn't punish sin in general. He punished Jesus for your sin. My sin. If you're in Christ. When the Bible says you are forgiven in Jesus, it means that the Father is not holding your sin against you. You've been released from sin's penalty. Your debt has been paid. And there is therefore no condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus by faith. Paul is telling you the truth in Romans 8 when he says there's no condemnation. And in the original, no condemnation means none. There's not any. He is not punishing you. He will not punish you because He punished Jesus in your place. That's what it means to be forgiven. This is how the Father rescues His children from the dominion of darkness by sending forth His own beloved Son to redeem us, to pay our debt at the cross, 
thereby breaking sin's shackles and bringing us into His kingdom by faith. Don't sell Jesus short. His blood paid for all of your sins if you know Him by faith. There's another piece to the redemption from verse 14 that we must see. There's another aspect to forgiveness that's essential. Notice the very first words in verse 14. In whom. In whom. That's a prepositional phrase. And it's important. Somewhere my 8th grade grammar teacher is really excited. Please don't breeze past that little phrase, friends. The Apostle Paul is telling us where this glorious redemption is found. It is found only in God's beloved Son. Redemption is in Jesus Christ. Friends, it's so key for us to understand this. I tried all week to think of a way to make this clear. This is the best that I can do. Redemption is not an abstract action, but a personal action. Forgiveness is not a thing that God can give you like a gift or a present. He doesn't have a bucket of forgiveness in heaven that He just scoops out to give to people. It's not an abstract thing. It's a personal thing. Forgiveness is personal. Redemption is personal. It was achieved in Christ's physical body at the cross and the resurrection. It's in Jesus. You see, this is why so many of the church's hymns down through the ages have focused on the blood of Christ. I'm sure to an outsider, it's probably very strange to come into a room and hear people singing about blood. It's probably even stranger to recognize that this blood required someone to die. But that's just it, friends. So many of the great hymn writers of the church wrote about blood because they understood this little phrase, in whom, in verse 14. They understood that redemption is not abstract. It's not a thing. It's a personal achievement of Christ. It's in Jesus. It was accomplished solely because the Son of God shed His blood as the redemption price for His people. And therefore, the pinnacle of Christian worship is in some sense to sing there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Our deepest joy is to raise our voices together and declare what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our confidence is to gather together as one body and sing out, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And friends, there's, there's nothing sweeter than to hear a congregation ask, would you be free from the burden of sin? And then to hear the answer in that wonderful refrain, there's power in the blood. Yes, it's strange to an outsider to hear songs about blood, but to forgiven sinners like us, this is our story and this is our song. That Christ's blood has secured our salvation. Friends, what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that we should never minimize that little phrase at the start of verse 14. Our redemption is in Christ, in His physical death and resurrection. We are freed from sin's penalty because Christ bore God's wrath in His body. We are freed from sin's power because Christ crushed death in His resurrection. It's not theoretical. It's flesh and blood. It's real, historical. The price of our redemption was Jesus' blood. That blood was shed at the cross. And therefore, we are proclaiming the greatest news in all of the universe when we say that forgiveness of sins is found only in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, this is your assurance of salvation. 
Verse 13 is your testimony. Verse 14 is your assurance. Don't trust your feelings. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the old hymn says, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Don't trust your feelings. Feelings are fickle and fleeting. And they'll change in the next hour. Base your assurance on the blood-bought, resurrection-sealed redemption that belongs to you in Christ. Jesus is the Christian's assurance. And since He died once and rose from the grave never to die again, those who trust Him can have confidence that their sins are indeed forgiven. Don't trust your feelings. Trust Christ. Think of it this way, brothers and sisters. In order for the Father to punish you for your sin, He would have to conclude that the blood of His Son was worthless. And the Father would never do such a thing because it's blasphemy. Indeed, right now, the Lord Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand because the Father has declared once and for all that Christ's blood is eternally effective. Have you ever wondered why the book of Hebrews makes such an emphasis on the fact that Jesus will never die again? It's to assure you and me that we're saved. He'll never die again. Why? Because salvation is accomplished once and for all. So if you are a Christian this morning, the Lord Jesus is your assurance of salvation. Don't trust your feelings to do what only Christ can do. Assure you of your standing with the Father. If you're not a Christian today, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ to save you, then I have good news for you. Though you live right now in the domain of darkness, God the Father rescues sinners through the redemption Christ accomplished at the cross. There is no hope of saving yourself if you're not a Christian. There's no hope of saving yourself. We've seen that very clearly from the Bible today. But the good news of the Bible is what we spent all this time considering. The good news is that God put forth His own Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for sin at the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life in every way. He did not deserve to die. Yet Jesus willingly went to the cross where He shed His blood and laid down His life. Why would He do that? So that sinners like you and me would be forgiven. And indeed, three days after He died, Jesus rose once more from the grave proving that sin had been dealt with once and for all. Forgiveness, redemption, life everlasting, all of that is found only in Christ Jesus. So if you don't know Christ by faith today, won't you turn from your sin and trust in His name? Rescue from sin's slavery. Redemption from sin's penalty. It's good news, friend. So trust in Christ and be saved. How can the holy God make an unholy people worthy to be His heirs? That's the great question underlying the Gospel message. And the answer to that question is the cross of Jesus Christ. God has qualified His people to share in His inheritance by rescuing them from the domain of darkness and transferring them to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The good news of the Gospel is amazing. And that good news is true because Jesus shed His blood to break sin's power, pay sin's penalty, and purchase life everlasting. No wonder then that Paul begins this letter by giving thanks to God the Father. We always thank God 
Paul says in verse 3. We always thank God. In fact, if you look at verses 3 through 14, which are a summary of the Christian life, notice how it begins and ends with thanksgiving in verse 3, and then thanksgiving again in verse 12 with a summary of the gospel. Beginning to end, thanks to God. So as you go about this upcoming week, I pray you would do so just as Paul instructed us to do with thanksgiving to God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have done what we could not do for ourselves. That You have rescued us from the grip of sin. Both its power and its penalty have been broken by Christ at the cross. Thank You, Father, for the gift of new life through the